Second P I want to talk to you about is also important in our church. Parking. So on, uh, on, when we have a good attendance, we're out of parking again. Last Sunday, we had 800 in worship in our three worship services, and I had people came in and say, man, I circled the church for a couple of times and couldn't find anywhere to park. And so that's a real problem. No matter how good our fellowship is and our singing is, if people can't park, everybody at our church now drives, I think. We don't have a bus line, subway. Now, I don't think anybody walks right now. Everybody drives. We need to provide parking. So we have guest parking, and it's full every week. It's not just because we have too many guests, but some members are parking in guest parking. And I want to ask you not to do that. I want to ask you not to park there. Now, part of the reason that members are parking there is because there's some older members, senior adults, that can't walk a long way. And all the parking near the building is full. And so they get the guest parking. And so no guests have nowhere to park. That's a problem. You get it? So what I need is some of you able-bodied young people like myself who, if you will join Oh, you didn't laugh. That was good. Okay, young, uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, so I need you to join me. We have a gold club card, a uh, gold club, pastor's gold club, that parks in the back far parking. But that's been full the last two weeks. So we've got a second club called the Pastor's Platinum Club. And these are folks who agree to park off campus, primarily in the library or in the Closets Plus. We have permission to park across Highway 41 off campus. I need some of you who are young and able-bodied like myself, if you'll join me, I park over there every Sunday. If you will do that, I will present you today with your own pastor's platinum card. See me after the service. It has the, ver- the verse, the last will be first and the first will be last because we believe in, in parking farther away to give that for other people. So you could, this could be yours today. If you would join me, see me at the Welcome Center or anytime in the hall, I'll be in the Pastors Platinum Club. I'll present you with your card today. Prayer, parking, two things, okay? All right, today I'm sharing a series of sermons on the miracles of Jesus. This month, we're looking at the healing miracles of Jesus. Today, we look at miracle of Jesus making the paralyzed to walk. We want to read in Mark chapter 2, if you want to follow in your Bible, beginning at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So Capernaum was his home. Maybe this is Peter's house. Maybe it's his own house. But he's in a house in Capernaum that is his home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So it's a packed house. People are listening from outside the door. And some men came, verse 3, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So these four guys carrying their friend, one in each corner of his mat, his pallet. And since they could not get hit to Jesus because of the crowd, they couldn't get in the door, couldn't even get near to where he was, but they weren't deterred with ingenuity. They went up on the roof And they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. So homes of that day sometimes would have flat roofs with even a staircase leading up to it because they would use it sort of as a a patio or to dry food or whatever. Uh, Some of the roofs, uh, a little less constructed than that, may have just been thatch roofs over poles and they could dig through the, the mud and the straw that made that roof. But however, they made an opening in the roof and they let And it says in verse 4, they lowered the mat the man was lying on. 
can't you just picture this? Jesus is preaching in a packed house, and you hear this scratching on the roof, and all of a sudden there's a hole, and then right in front of Jesus, here comes this pallet with ropes lowered in front of him, and there are these four heads peeking through the hole uh, down into it. Wouldn't that be some scene? And it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, their faith being, I think, the faith of the man and looking up to see these four men who were with him. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why did he say that? That's not why they lowered him through the roof probably, was it? But you see, the faith of this man would bring an even greater need. His greatest need was forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus responded, in the greater need, your sins are forgiven. That's, that's what you most need, and that's what your, your faith will procure. And now it says in verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus is either God or he's a fraud and a blasphemer. They were correct in the two options here. You've got to decide what you believe about Jesus because he didn't just claim to be another great religious teacher. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed to be God. They knew it. They said only God can forgive sins. Who do you say Jesus is? It says in verse 8 that immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking to their, in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. Well, we know now which is easier. It would appear that it would be easier just to say, oh, your sins are forgiven because people can't see that. But we know in light of the cross that for Jesus to forgive sins, he was going to have to stretch out his hands and die for us. That was the more difficult thing. It was going to cost the life of the Son of God, and that's what Jesus had done. But he says in verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins And so he said to the man, in order that they would know that Jesus can do an even greater miracle, that he can forgive sins, he said to the man in verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. He came in through the roof, but he went out through the door. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is the Jesus that we present to you. He is the Jesus who, like God, can forgive sins, and he is the one who can show that he can make the crippled, the paralyzed, the lame to walk. Now, I've been preaching about these miracles for about six weeks, a couple of weeks now, and healing miracles I want to try to anticipate some questions that you may have, maybe thinking about these miracles. I want to try to answer some of those questions as best I can. First question is, is this stuff real? Are miracles really possible? Don't they contradict the laws of nature? Somebody really walk on water, multiply food, make crippled people to walk and blind eyes to see? Well, you may be a science person, you're just a little skeptical, and and that's okay. Let me share with you a thing or two to consider. 
You see, if God, I believe in the laws of nature, but if God created this world, he created the laws of nature and he's authoritative over them. Michael Strauss is a Christian who's a physics professor at Oklahoma University and he explained it this way. He said when you go to a traffic light, if it's red, you stop. If it's green, you go. That's the law of traffic, right? And we all know that and we all work within those laws of traffic, don't we? But he said sometimes an ambulance with a siren on and with a light flashing, comes through that interstate, intersection. And then what do you do? Then you stop even if it's green, don't you? Because the laws of traffic have been abrogated by a higher priority, right? And then when the ambulance goes through, we go right back to those laws, don't we? It doesn't eliminate those laws of traffic, but sometimes there's a higher authority that overrules them. So could it not be that God created our world with laws of gravity and all the other laws of nature and they work but sometimes God sends an ambulance through the intersection and he is, he's a greater authority. And so for a moment those laws can be suspended or set aside for a higher purpose. You see you can sort of, if you're having trouble believing the miracles what I would encourage you to do, you say, I just don't know about some. What I'd encourage you to do is go to the biggest miracle and see whether you believe that or not. The biggest miracle about Jesus is the resurrection. The Bible says Christianity will stand or fall on the resurrection. You examine the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? And if you do believe that Jesus raised from the dead, that the empty tomb, the transformed lives of the disciples, that the, the fulfilled prophecy of the Old Testament. I believe Jesus really is resurrected from the dead. Well, if he can do that, can't he do anything else? You argue from the, from the greater to the lesser. If he's risen from the dead, it is nothing <clears throat> to consider that he'd make a paralyzed man walk. If he created the world, then he's sovereign over that world and can do as he pleases. There's no contradiction between being a person of science and believing in the laws of nature, but also believing in a God who created that system and can run that system. Let me share with you a second question that maybe some of us are thinking about. Do, do these miracles happen today? Does God do miracles today? You may say, well, I believe the, old, the stories in the Bible here, the story of Jesus doing this, but, but does God still do those miracles today? I believe that he does. Christians have different views on this question about how God operates today. You see, there are some Christians who say that the miracles were primarily by Jesus and the apostles to establish the truth of the gospel at its beginning. And they were the age of the apostles, and they were before the Bible was formed, which is now our authority. And that, so the preaching of the word needed authentication. It needed the support of miracles. So God allowed Jesus, of course, and the apostles that followed him to do miracles. But now the apostolic age is over. There are no more apostles, they would say. And the Bible is completed, and it's our authority. And so miracles are not needed as much. And so that although God might could do miracles, he doesn't do miracles much in this age. It's the, the view primarily of reformed churches, of dispensationalists. This is not the dispensation of miracles. And they would point out that miracles occur not um, altogether evenly through the Bible, but in clusters. If you read the Old Testament, everybody's not doing miracles. But when God's doing something new at the time of Moses and the Exodus, here's a big cluster of miracles. At the time that prophecy arises, Elijah and Elisha, there's a 
cluster of miracles to substantiate that. And they're saying now that the gospel substantiated, God doesn't do miracles like that much anymore. Well, that's sort of one extreme here. Now, the other extreme or the other view, contrasting view, is that that the, the Holy Spirit is the same as before, and so God, we should expect the same quantity and quality of miracles that Jesus did in our lives today. This is a view of more Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Um, Kenneth Copeland's a preacher still on the television. I, it was, when I was in Fort Worth, he was there in Fort Worth. I don't know if he shares this, says this now, but he would say in, in those days that it's not God's will for a Christian to be sick. They, he would believe that Healing is provided in the atonement by his stripes were healed, Isaiah says, and so that, yeah, he knows that Christians die, but you don't die sick. God intends you to recover from, from every kind of disease. Well, you see, that's sort of the other extreme that's saying that these miracles ought to always happen in our lives, that it's not God's will for us to ever be sick, if we are to be sick, to get well, uh, because God has provided in the atonement healing there. Uh, I don't buy that, that view either. Uh, I think it puts a great disservice on people who pray in genuine faith and don't see a miracle. But I think in between those two extremes, I want to affirm I believe that God does do miracles today. And I know that you, maybe you've been dissuaded by some who take extreme views and you think are a huckster on television or whatever. But I believe that God does do miracles um, I think Tim Stafford is a journalist I respect a great deal, a Christian man, and he investigated miracles, especially happening in missionary settings today. And he said he sees four factors where God does astounding miracles, healing the sick, uh, raising the dead today, as he did in the times of Jesus, because these are new settings, like the time of the apostle, where there is not the foothold of the gospel, and when God does a new thing, he often does miracles to substantiate that. And so Philip, uh, Stafford said that when there's times of places of illiteracy, when the culture doesn't have the concept of sin and salvation in the Bible, where there is open um, conflict between spiritual powers, there's voodoo and there's witchcraft and there's animistic worship, He said, in those kind of settings, God still seems to do the same thing that he did in the New Testament time because that same purpose is served. God, in his grace and mercy, is authenticating the work of God by doing spectacular miracles. And so that's why we hear in in some of these places where the gospel is beginning to reach great miracle stories, and I don't doubt that. But I also believe that God still does miracles in the West in established places. I believe that God is sovereign and we can't put him in a box and that God can still do anything he wants to do. And I believe even though maybe we don't see the the numbers of miracles that occurred in the life of Jesus or in the life of the Apostle Paul or when Peter and just his shadow would pass over people, the book of Acts says, and they were healed. I believe that God still does that. About six years ago, I preached on miracles here. And in the midst of the sermon, I had three guys come up and give their testimony that medical personnel had told them they weren't going to live. And we prayed for them, and God healed them. One of them's here in this service. I asked him if I could share it this morning. Gene Walter, would you just raise your hand right there? 
Gene Walter was one of those who gave his testimony six years ago. Medical personnel said to me, I, I don't, don't think he's going to make it. He's just, the brain bleed is so massive. Gene's sitting here today. Don't you want to give praise to God for that? God does miracles still today. Now let me, uh, let me say one more thing about that. Some of you think, well, maybe it's just you uneducated people uh, that believe in miracles. You know, you're not sophisticated. 67% of the people, according to Barna Research in America Today, believe that miracles occur today. 67%, two-thirds of the people. Doctors, who would be among the most highly educated in our society, 75% of doctors in America, according to Barna Research, believe that miracles occur today. So these are the people that, uh, that come into contact with things that in their scientific worldview they simply cannot explain. So a higher percentage of doctors in America today believe miracles occur today than even the common populace. Now, let me try to address another question. Should we ever stop? Well, well first of all, should we pray for miracles of healing? So if God does them, at least occasionally, maybe they're rare, um, but do, should we pray for miracles of healing? I think the answer is yes. I want to read to you James 5, verses 14 and 15. Is any among you sick? Speaking to the church. Is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And if they've sinned, They'll be forgiven. So the Bible tells us in the church that, yes, we can pray for miracles. And the Bible gives us this direction that uh, uh, if you're sick, and of course anyone can pray. We believe in the priesthood of believers. Your prayers reach God as much as I. But there is that if you want the church to pray for you, you come to the elders. That's pastors. That's leaders of the church. And uh, anoint with oil. I don't believe there's any magic in oil, but I have no problem doing what the Bible says. And the oil is a sign of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so anoint them with oil and pray over them. If today you're sick and you want us to, to pray over you, we do this in our prayer meeting every Wednesday night. We don't take time in every Sunday morning service, but we're preaching about these miracles. If you want to come forward in the invitation, we'll pray for you. We'll anoint you with oil. Uh, that you might be healed. I believe in praying boldly. I believe, you know, I'm going to, if somebody asks me to pray for healing, unless there's obvious reasons not to, I'm going I'm to honor their request and pray, pray for healing. Now, I don't believe in demanding of God. I hear some people pray that, you know, it's like if you just really claim it, then God has to do it. I claim this in the name of Jesus. I, I demand we, uh, I think that prayer is to be like the, the Bible tells us, like a child coming to a father. Jesus said, which of your children, if you, if you ask for a fish, would give, him a, would give him a stone or a serpent. So I don't want my kids coming to say, I claim that cookie that I want from you. You know, I don't want them demanding that. I want them to ask, and then I'll, I'll give that to them if that's best for them. But I believe in praying boldly. And so uh, um, I, the Bible tells us, we're, we're submissive to God, but to pray boldly. I think there's, there's four ingredients in a miracle. If you read these healing miracles, as you go, watch us as we go through them, you'll see four common elements in, in healing miracles. 
There's the power of God, the compassion of God, the will of God, and faith of the individual. First two of those never change. The power of God and the compassion of God never change. When you don't get a miracle, you don't doubt. The power of God and the compassion of God never change. There are two that are variable. The will of God and the faith of the individual. And so as we put our faith in God, when it's God's will, he may grant a miracle. And so he tells us to pray in faith boldly for that. Next question is, should we ever stop praying for a miracle? Should you ever stop praying for a miracle? Maybe some of you, you say, Pastor, I've, I've had paralysis for a long time. I've had diabetes for a long time, for years and years. I've had, I've had some chronic pain for a long time. Do I ever stop praying for a miracle? I think the answer is you never stop praying for what you know to be God's will. The Bible tells us in Luke 18, persevere in prayer like a persistent widow. So if you're praying for a person to be saved, you know that's God's will. You never stop praying. If you're praying for revival, you never stop praying for that. There may be times when you stop praying for a miracle of healing when you come to realize that God has a greater purpose. Let me show it to you in the 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 9. It says, um, Middle of the verse, I'm starting to read. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, Paul says, a messenger of Satan, some physical ailment, some unknown thorn in his flesh to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. So apparently Paul is not continuing now to pray. There's a definite number to the times he's prayed. He said, I prayed three times for this. and But the Lord said to them, but, verse 9, but... Uh, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And in the mystery of God's plan, Paul came to accept that God had a purpose for him to live with this physical ailment, that it would bring more glory to God. And that God would teach him things about his sufficient grace. You see, we tend to think that dramatic miracles would be the greatest evangelistic sign that we could have, right? I've thought that. I've often prayed for somebody and I thought, God, if you just raise this person up, what a powerful witness that would be to those friends around them at work who are not Christians. We think that that a... dramatic miracle would be the greatest evangelistic thing. God doesn't think that. God sometimes uses that, and he sometimes does in Paul's life. He says, I'll gain glory through your endurance through suffering. You'll see that God's people still suffer, and yet there is something in them that is more than they, and that'll point people to me. And so God sometimes has a greater purpose. Randy Alcorn, Christian author I respect, uh, said, uh, 1985, he got diabetes. He prayed for years for that diabetes to be gone. And then reading this passage, he came to say, I I think now God wants me to endure that and show his glory through my disease and my suffering. One more question. Why doesn't God do more miracles? If we believe that he does miracles even today and whatever basis, why doesn't he do more? The girl last week after uh, I preached 
asked, my mom died, why didn't she get a miracle? Why didn't God do more miracles? I don't have all the answer to that. Show you a passage in 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul, last thing he's writing, he's ending 2 Timothy, and he's all alone in jail, or pretty much alone. He says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. The next verse he says, do your best to come to me. Miletus couldn't go with Paul in the last few days of his life. Uh, He said, uh, I had to leave him sick. Think of that. All those people that Paul had healed, sometimes people had been healed just by the handkerchiefs that he had wiped his sweat with, the book of Acts says, and by touching them. And yet now Miletus, I had to leave him sick. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I know a couple of things. I know that Acts 14.22 says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That sometimes God does things in our life through suffering that he could not do other ways. Hardship is sometimes part of his will. I want to close by telling you a story, story if some of you know and some of you will not. It's the story of a young woman named Johnny Erickson. In 1967, Johnny Erickson was a 17-year-old, a teenager, swimming in Chesapeake Bay with her family, dove off a dock, tried to do an inward pike, didn't come out of the inward pike, Misjudged the depth of the water, hit her head, broke her neck. Was quadriplegic. Paralyzed from the shoulders down. Johnny Erickson would say she was a Christian at that time, but that her identity was not as a Christian. It was not really defined who she was. She was a nominal Christian. But she said, I began to search the Bible in my paralysis to see if if God would heal paralyzed people, and she came to this passage that we read today. And she read the story from Mark 2 about how these four men lowered this man on a mat, and Jesus healed him, and, and she prayed for that, and she, started, and she prayed earnestly for God to heal her, and she started going to healing crusades. There's a uh, Catherine Kuhlman at that time did healing crusades, sort of like the Benny Hinn of, of that day, and and she went, I said, I went to three crusades. My sister drove me all over the country to these healing crusades that, that God might heal me. And it said they would put the spotlight on the arena on people who were being healed over here and people being healed over there. And I was sitting in my wheelchair and, and, and she said, I would think, God, why don't you put that spotlight over on the hard cases up here where I am? She said, after that third crusade, I went into despair. My sister drove me home. I didn't get out of bed for weeks. They would try to get me up to move me and do therapy. I stayed in my bed for weeks. I was in despair. She said, finally, I got up again. My sister propped up a Bible on a music stand with a mouth stick. That's how she would turn the pages of the Bible. Johnny Erickson turned the pages with her mouth stick, and she read again this passage that we've read today. And she said, I I noticed the part I was not willing to see before where Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And he said, which do you think is harder to forgive sins or to heal? And she said, I've been so focused on the lesser miracle that I wanted from him that I missed the greater miracle that he could do. And she said, my life changed and I became committed that he would change me and even use my suffering to change me that the greater need was my forgiveness of sins. Johnny Erickson went on 
to be such a great Christian leader over the past 50 years, wrote 40 books, did great paintings by holding a paintbrush in her mouth. Look up online the paintings of Johnny Erickson Tata. Does a radio program every week, Johnny and Friends, a leader in the Christian disability community of spotlighting the needs of those people. 50 years now, she's been in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the shoulders down. The 50th anniversary of her, of her diving accident, here's what she wrote. God's goal is not to make me us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. So for the last 50 years in my wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus, dying to self and rising with Jesus, dying to self and rising with Jesus. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so I might find myself in Christ. God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things for which I need to be healed. Does God miraculously heal? Sure he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. It's all to the praise of deeper healing in Christ. We're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. And I want to invite you, if you want to come for prayer, I invite you to stand with me right now. Uh, if you want to come for prayer, we'd be honored to pray for you. We'll pray boldly as you request for God to give you physical relief. God cares about your pain. And God can do that, and he may do that. But there's a greater healing. I want to invite you also to come that your sins would be forgiven. That if you'll put your faith in Jesus as this paralyzed man did, you can have life eternal. Any miracle is a temporary solution except the miracle that he'll do in your heart where he will cause you to be born again. You can be baptized. You can join our church. So if you want to come for prayer, if you want to come join our church, you want to come to follow Jesus, we invite you to come as we sing together right now. Through every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance I believe you are my fortress You are my portion You are my hiding place Oh, I believe you are the way The truth the life I believe you are the way the truth the life I believe through every blessing through every promise through every breath I take I believe that you are provided.